Well, it's good to see you all tonight. Great encouragement to see so many here. Do you trust we'll have a sense of the Lord speaking to us? Our thanks once again to those who have looked after us today. It's just been great. Thank you for your willingness and for your gentle care of us. And we look forward to next week in glad anticipation also. We're going to read the great closing doxology that the Apostle Paul penned under the direction of the Spirit at the end of Romans chapter 8. This really is the climax of chapters 5, 6, 7 and 8. And really what he's referring to as he begins with, what then um, shall we say in response to this? He's talking about all that he's written uh, from the beginning of the epistle, but particularly from the argument that starts at the beginning of chapter 5, which we've been thinking about over the last few months. So let's read these great words together, and then uh, we'll have a brief look at them as we close. So from verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this or to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and it's a huge negative. No, 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 definitely not. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any parts, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And don't you wish you could write about the Lord like that? This beautiful, inspired passage. And we're going to look at this series of questions and Paul's response to them, as I say, briefly tonight, so that we might recognize just how significant this final statement of the apostles is in relation to his previous arguments. So these questions... What shall we say to these things? Who can be against us? Who will bring any charge? Who is he that condemns? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
In the goodness of God we have received all things in Christ. And through Christ, all that God has done is in Christ. All that Christ has done is for God and for us. And this raises immediately this huge question. If we have all things in Christ and all things through Christ, and if God is thus for us, who can be against us? And I hear you all shouting, no one, or you should be all shouting, no one. Because that's the fact of the matter. If God be God, and God is God, and Christ is God manifest in flesh, and if this God be for us, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the one who is the ultimate in design, the one who has done everything possible for our forgiveness, who can be against us? Because he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And he who is the Almighty gives the one who is the permanent expression of the Almighty in the flesh, gives him for us. So how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things or give us all things in his grace? I don't think it has entered our minds the majesty of that which God has done in Christ. These sort of momentary revelations that the apostle received as he was considering these great questions. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God has done all this, if that which God has done is accomplished in Christ, if Christ died on the cross and in dying cried it is finished, what other possible argument can there be against the work of God in your life and in my life? Because he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So how can he fail to give us everything if he's given us his son? You see the force of the argument. But then he he takes it another step further, and you'll recognize that these are all cumulative. And I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this this week. But who, who then will bring any charge against them, them whom God has chosen. What charge can be brought against those who have been forgiven in Christ because of all that Christ has done? We were guilty before God. And you remember how that argument develops in chapter 5 of this great book. And Paul emphasizes to each of us that we're condemned already. We're condemned in the sight of God. But it's God who does the condemnation. So all our sin is against God. But it is God who justifies. So if everything we have done has been against God, and God steps into this realm and through Christ brings this justification, making us righteous in his sight because of what Jesus has done, he is the the greatest in the widest sense of that term. So who else can bring a charge if God has forgiven us? Because the charge that we face before God is that all have sinned, and come short of God's glory. And we've all suffered death because the wages of sin is death. 
And Paul says, look, if God has justified us, brought us into this righteous position before him because of all that Christ has done, how, how can anyone else bring a charge against us? Because all sin is against God. So if God is for us, who can be against us? Who then can bring any charge against those whom God has called and, and demonstrate to be chosen? Then he takes it another line further. It is God that justifies, so who is he that condemns? So somebody can't stand up at some point in the future and say against a Christian man or woman who has truly trusted Christ, well, I'm going to condemn you because of some action you have taken or because of something you have done. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And this is an ongoing work of the eternal. This is the ongoing work of the, of the resurrected Christ. Somebody comes along and says, I don't like what so-and-so did and they're supposed to be a Christian. But how can anyone condemn us if Christ has forgiven us and Christ is now interceding for us at the right hand of God? Satan can't do it. Because he's to be defeated at the cross. Hebrews 2. Through death, saying of the Lord Jesus, through death he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We've been delivered. The condemnation has been lifted. And God will never bring back the condemnation which was upon us. You remember that whenever the Lord Jesus quoted that uh, great verse in John 3.16, he also said in John 3.18, and this is a verse which we don't quote very often, he that believes not is condemned already. You know, our condemnation is the, the sentence which God passes upon us as sinners. But if through grace... I believe that Christ has died and been raised and glorified and is interceding for me, then any condemnation has to get past Christ. And he is the resurrected one who has borne and carried the debt of my sin. And you see the force of this sort of ongoing argument as Paul addresses each of these great questions. Now I'm thinking that there may be some of you here and in recent days, or perhaps not so recent days, I mean, something happened in life and you've lost that sense of assurance or perhaps you never had a sense of assurance that if Christ has died, that somehow or other um, there's a possibility of you being lost or somehow or other losing your salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. What Paul is doing here is he's lining up all the counter-arguments to the forgiveness that comes through Christ. And he's saying basically to you and I as Christians and to these Roman Christians, he's saying, look, have a bit of sense. You know, get your, your head around this and recognize if God be for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. So how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect, against those whom he has chosen? Because it's God who justifies all sinners against him and he sets us free from sin. Who is he that condemns? Well, God has done the condemnation. 
you believe not, you're condemned already. But if you've been brought into Christ, Christ Jesus who died more than that, who has raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So you've had a bad day today. And somehow or other you've not been aware of the grace of God in your life and you're thinking to yourself, I'm a rotten Christian. Forget about that because any person who's in Christ is a new creature. Christ has done it all. And he says to you and me tonight, rejoice in this because there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. And then you say to yourself, but Peter, something could go badly wrong. You know, I, I could actually somehow or other be separated from the love of God. And that's the next question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he brings a number of things together. And he brings three things which arise, I would suggest to you. First of all, first of all from those in society who are against Christ. Because he asks the question, shall trouble or hardship or persecution. Christians were constantly subjected to persecution. It, it, was, it was and still is part of the package. And if you know anything about what's happening in, in the Middle East or the Far East at the minute, you'll know that Christians are being sorely persecuted. If you know anything about what's happening in Niger, Nigeria and southern Sudan, you know that Christians are being sorely persecuted. It's part of the thing that's happening. It's part of what continues to happen. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here, if you face, and we may be called to in this country, trouble, hardship, or persecution arising from those around you, don't be afraid because he's going to negative this in just a moment. Shall famine or nakedness, you know, destruction of that which is closest to it, in general terms, the United Kingdom is a prosperous country, but there's some living in desperate poverty within it. And some of those are Christians. Shall poverty separate us from the love of Christ? Not at all. Shall these particular things that he's emphasizing, famine, of which we know little, will famine separate us from Christ? We get sort of um, physically hungry, Will that somehow or other lessen the hold that Christ has on us? Shall peril or sword, I suggest to you primarily from the enemy, shall peril or sword separate us from the love of Christ? If we suffer death and face death all day long, if we're being considered a sheep to be slaughtered, if, if those around are determined to snuff out all Christians, Diocletian, the emperor reigned in Rome from about A.D. 97 onwards, was a vile man. And it was his avowed intent to de destroy Christianity from the face of the earth. And he did everything possible in his power to get rid of every Christian that he knew of in the empire. And by the time he died, there were more Christians in the empire than when he started. Because this is our God. And it doesn't matter how violent the future might be, the reality of any man or woman who is in Christ, that even if someone slays you, all they're doing is releasing you into the immediate presence of God. You know, they're not making less Christians. They're just accelerating the death of Christians into the blessings which God has for them. I don't know if we ever register that. You know, I think sometimes we think, oh, it would be great if all Christians were preserved. Listen, you're not going to live forever. 
And one of the portals that the Lord uses is persecution and peril and sword. It's one of the ways into his presence. And the apostle is saying here, look, even if your life here is cut short, it doesn't mean that somehow or other your salvation is lessened. Rather, it is enhanced because you're released from the presence of the Lord here on earth into his immediate presence, into his presence forever. And you can't destroy someone like that. You'll recognize that. You're just enhancing his or her experience. So Paul outlines that, and he says, you know, this is, this is the package. We face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. It's just a bald no in our translation, but absolutely not. It's a, it's a huge imperative that, the, that, the, that Paul uses here. No. In all these things, like, please take this home with you. In all these things, that is trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That's a strange expression, isn't it? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. A possible translation is this. All, in all these things, we gain advantage beyond conquest. Think about it. In all these things we gain advantage beyond conquest. Why? Because adversity can now be seen as far as for our good. So when things get rough, what tends to happen in Christian communities is they draw closer to God and they're drawn closer to one another. I had the privilege of going into Romania just a fortnight after Ceausescu was shot. And all over the country there were these watchtowers and, and so forth. Every Christian that went to a place of worship was marked by the authorities. And when I got there, the first congregation that I spoke to was almost 500. And this wee church, literally in the middle of nowhere, at a crossroads. And these folk come up to me afterwards and give me great big hugs and kisses. And said things like, well, we haven't heard any, anybody from the Western world for 25 years. And we're so glad you've come. And I was preaching to them on the epistle of the Colossians. And I said, but I'm just a messenger, you know, I'm just a nobody. But you came. And I said, well, why? As through the interpreter, I said, why have, have you got this buoyancy? Because it was the delight to preach. You know, if you stopped after an hour and a half, they'd ask you to preach for another hour and a half. Not that I'm going to do that tonight. Just be an hour tonight. But, you know, there's, there's this whole... Buoyancy is the only term I can use. Because in their adversity, they have been drawn closer to the Lord. And so many of them walk so closely to the Lord. And they hadn't tuppence. You know, I was staying with a pastor called Janjor and Jabo. And when I was staying with him... Yeah, they would give cabbage soup as a, as a special treat every second day. Now, the cabbage soup consisted of an onion and a couple of leaves of cabbage and a bowl of boiling water. 
And that was all they had. But they had this sense of the Lord and the Lord being with them and the fact that they were more than conquerors within their adversity because of this reality of the experience of Christ. It wasn't something um, that they pretended. It was something which was absolutely real in their experience. And they lived every day in the consciousness. You know, this fellow Jabo had been imprisoned three times in the previous five years by the authorities, the, the pastor that I was staying with. And they lived in the awareness of the fragility of their life as they knew it, but on the significance of eternal life as they experienced it. And they had this real awareness that to be with Christ is really far better. I think sometimes in Western society we'd like to live to be 150 because we don't want to get that to go to glory too soon. No, but that's not what it's about, is it? We live this life in the joy of the Lord until we experience the fullness of the joy of the Lord in him when we get there. And you have this awareness of the capability of Christ. And those dear folk, in spite of the persecution, had an awareness of the tenderness of the Lord Jesus. You know, that he ministered to them in their weakness. And though they hadn't tuppence, and some of them didn't, they had this just sense of his support and the, the fact that they were more than conquerors through him who loved them. And they didn't say, because of their prosperity, the Lord was blessing them. They said, because of their poverty, the Lord was blessing them. Don't be taken in with uh, abnormal modern theology. There's no such thing in Scripture as prosperity doctrine. And if you're enhanced by it or think it's great, then I'm sorry. That's not Our Savior asked on one occasion, show me a coin. Our Saviour had no place to lay his head, but he knew more of the presence and experience of God than any of us will ever know. And this is our calling, to recognise we are more than conquerors. We, we gain advantage beyond conquest through him who has loved us. And then you have this great closing statement. And, you know, I don't know if we are convinced, but the Apostle Paul certainly was. And look at what he says in these ten great statements at the, at the end of this chapter. I am convinced. What did he mean? He said, I have a change of mind which is brought about as the facts of salvation have been revealed to me by the Spirit. Because he used to put his trust in being a Pharisee. He used to be, put his trust in doing the things that Pharisees did. He used to put his trust in... Being saying, saying that he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of his day. That was what he was trusting in. But now he says, listen, I, I'm convinced my mind has been changed because of my experience of Christ. Uh, the facts of salvation have, have been revealed by the Spirit. I have considered and remain convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels, nor fallen angels, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is almost as though he's off the planet, isn't it? 
You know, we've been called according to his purpose and brought into this experience of Christ and brought into the reality of knowing him. And the apostle says, look, get your head around the, the reality of this. Become convinced in your mind, as I am convinced, that these polar opposites, you know, neither life nor death. He put that into context. So neither magic prosperity in life or the, the dearth of, of material things in life, or death itself, this which appears to extinguish everything, it will never separate us from the love of Christ. So if you're a Christian, there's nothing that can happen in your life and nothing that will happen through your death that can separate you from the love of Christ. Isn't that great? Because so many of us, maybe not afraid of death, but are afraid of the experience of dying. But it's not going to it's not going to make any difference. You know, if you know Christ now, you'll know him better then. And if life's as life is, and all the vicissitudes, that famous word that so many preachers use and they don't understand, including myself, but all the vicissitudes of life will never separate you from the love of Christ. It is impossible for it to happen. And you say, well, an angel might intervene in my life. It doesn't make any difference because angels are weaker than Christ. But demons are stronger. No, they're not because the devil's on a loser. You know, through death he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And you say, but the devil could get into my life. He can never separate you from the love of Christ. He can never separate you from the love of Christ. What about time? What about the passage of time? Neither the present nor the future. That's a strange statement to put in there, isn't it? Well, I thought it was strange. Neither the present. How can the present separate me from the love of Christ? Well, I sinned grievously this week. It's such an awful sin. I think the Lord couldn't forgive it. Well, if that's the sin the Lord couldn't forgive, I'd like you to tell me about it. Nothing in the present or anything that can happen in the future. But my health might be wrecked. doesn't matter. When I don't feel saved tonight, make any difference. If you're trusting in Christ, you're a Christian. If you're not, you're not. Present or the future, nor any powers. That's a strange expression too, isn't it? What about the power of political turmoil? What about the power of pop music? And that's not a light statement. What about the power of drugs? Surely if I get into that sort of scenario, that'll separate me from the love of God, not according to the apostle. Neither height nor depth. I would judge that to be in relation to experience particularly could become the most significant person in Britain, become the highest of the high. You might become proud. But if you're a believer, you cannot be separated from the love of God. And you could sink into the gutter. But if you're a believer, you can't be separated from the love of God. I remember talking to a fellow who had been in the oil rigs. He'd never be, become a Christian. His wife was a Christian. And he'd been in the oil rigs. And he came in one night into the soup kitchen that we ran in Aberdeen. And uh, he just opened his life, began drinking, 
a lot of money coming off the rigs. Lived on the west coast, all the rigs were on the east coast at that time. And he'd lost his way in a big way, and his wife had left him, and his family was in a mess. And I tried to talk to him about the love of God, and he couldn't get beyond the present. Couldn't get beyond his present drunken circumstances. Couldn't get beyond the fact that he'd wrecked his family. But if that man was to become a believer, none of these things would ever separate him from the love of Christ. Because Christ saves to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. Because this is what he's about. And you may be here this evening, you're not yet a believer, it's time you were. No, you're going to be alive tomorrow. If you're not a believer, it's time you were. When I believe in the Lord God Almighty, through the person of the Lord Jesus with all my heart. Neither height nor depth. Then as though the Spirit of God is saying to Paul, just in case you miss something out, Paul, say the rest of it, nor anything else in all creation. And you might be saying in your own mind, well, there's something, it must be something that can separate me from the love of God. Absolutely not. It's utterly and totally impossible. Nothing in all creation. And all creation has come from the hand of God and it's all been marred by sin. But there's nothing in all creation, if you're a true believer, that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he uses this personal pronoun so deliberately here. You know, If you're in Christ and he's your Lord and my Lord, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from his love. That is really special. And I feel so inadequate to to try to preach this tonight. But how can we doubt or, or be dismayed if God be in our life? How can we doubt? Why do we get all tied up with some of the nonsense that goes on about us? Because he brings the security. He brings forgiveness. He accompanies himself with his love. And I I just feel like crying tonight, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because what the apostle is saying here is that your salvation is absolutely non-dependent on you. Isn't that right? Don't look so pleased about it. Yeah, but there's there's no way in which your salvation depends upon you. It's all about him. The keeping is all about him. The loving is all about him. The giving is all about him. And Paul reiterates, as you've seen through this passage, this whole question of the love of Christ which has been shown to us. And if you're ever feeling that the Lord doesn't really love you or couldn't really love you, have a look at the cross. Because that's what it's about. For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him, comes to faith, trusts him, takes him at his word, will not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Yeah? Not a life that's going to change. Not a life that's going to be distorted, but a life which is eternal, a life which is everlasting. The life of God rooted in your soul forever. 
regardless of what happens. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, so far beyond our comprehension and yet so clearly stated by the great apostle, and we say with him, I am convinced. Recognize that you being God and Christ being Christ, when we come to faith in him by your grace and are brought into this relationship, that this relationship is secured eternally by all that you do and all that you are. And we praise you that there's nothing in all creation which can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ, with the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Father, we bow in your presence and we worship you this evening because there's no reason in the wide world why you should love any of us. And yet you love us because you love us and you give your son because you love us. And we worship at your feet as we recognize that unworthy though we are, you have called us into this so great salvation almost beyond expression, even under the inspiration of the Spirit. And we just thank you for these great words which you caused to be written so long ago. These words of the Apostle, which have been so fresh and so real to us tonight, and which are so important in our day and generation, to recognize that he is the one who ever lives to intercede for us. We bow in your presence and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.